Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. This month, GPB reporters have been out hiking, climbing, boating to bring you stories from our Wild Georgia series. Stories about how we interact with the natural beauty of our state. The series wraps today. Grant Blankenship reported on the coyote population, and he's with us from our Macon Bureau. Hello, Grant. Good morning. How are you? Very well. And we're also exploring how popular Stone Mountain, that tourist destination that thousands and thousands of people visit every year, compares with similar structures with Sophia Salaby. She's here in the studio. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Grant, I'm going to start with you, though. You reported on a new coyote study, and you started your story explaining how it was done. Right. Yes. So... uh... They, they had to catch a bunch of coyotes is how this worked. Uh, this this was the largest study of its kind across the southeast. Um, took place in South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, sections of all three of those states. And they literally, uh, researchers from the Warnell School of Forestry at UGA, caught hundreds of coyotes, tracked them with GPS collars uh, for two years just to, you know, sort of Facebook stalk them, essentially, and see what it was they were doing out in the wild. So the results of that study, what do they show? That coyotes are now saturating the South, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's hardly a place in the South where there aren't coyotes. That's one thing they already knew. Um, but the questions they had that they didn't know the answers to is like exactly what it is they're doing. What are they eating, for instance? And now after two years of looking at the coyotes and they're still parsing this information that they got, you know, the data they got from the study. They are answering some of those questions. Well, let me back up a little bit. And, you know, obviously people in urban settings may not see coyotes, but people in rural and even suburban places often hear them at night and some even see them now and then. When did coyotes actually get to the south and where do they live? Yeah, so that process started maybe about 100 years ago. Um, they, the Mississippi River was a big fat barrier, right? And But sometime about 100 years ago, that was breached. And then once that happened, it was all bets are off. Coyotes are moving in. The places they live, if you can imagine like sort of an aerial view of the deep south, it's not a lot of sort of contiguous wilderness. It'll be a patch of forest here, some farmland here, perhaps a neighborhood. And that sort of patchy quilt work of environment, coyotes are able to exploit like no other animal. They Mm. can make themselves at home in all of these different places, sometimes in territories that take in every different kind of that. As you said, about 100 years ago, it's not like there's a fence along the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, Coyotes could have trotted down south at any time. Why weren't they here before then? Well, you know, back in in the days when, when Europeans first hit North American shores, there were wolves and mountain lions. I mean, there were very large predators all across the South. Um, European colonists very quickly decided to extirpate those animals from, from this environment so that they could have first access to the prey animals like deer and the elk, which have also been extirpated from the South. Um, so th- the coyotes just didn't have a place to be before those large predators got gone. And since those animals have been gone for a very long time, this has sort of been like an open space for some kind of predator to move back in and make itself at home. So colonists moved south. They killed wolves. With no wolves, coyotes moved in. How are coyotes now shaking up the food chain? Well, so out west, where coyotes have been for millennia, they're generalists. They eat small animals, um, insects, fruit. Here, what we're seeing, and this is the big shocker from this study, 
they're starting to shift to more consistent preying on adult white-tailed deer. Hmm. Uh, which So everybody kind of knew that they were maybe opportunistically eating fawns this time of year when, when fawns are born. It was sort of eating the baby deer when they were left alone. But the fact that in sort of deep uh, hardwood bottoms that they're hunting adult deer is is sort of the, the eye-opener. And that's the thing that they found in this study. And so do deer move it? You, you described that patchwork of dense forests separated by meadow, that kind of thing. Are deer living in that same kind of environment? Are they basically sharing those woods? Well, right. Yeah. So deer move across all those different environments too, right? So big, big openings with grassy stuff to eat. They like those during some times of the day. And But the places where coyotes are most successful in hunting deer, from what the scientists can tell, are really dense hardwood forests. Places where, like imagine you've got a Ferrari in the Kroger parking lot and you're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. You can't just lay on the gas without like Mm -hmm. running over a shopping cart, right? So that's the case of the deer in these woods. They can't go as fast as they can and they're sort of at a strategic disadvantage to coyotes in that environment. So one of the things I heard in your report is this distinction between the transient animal and the resident animal. What does that distinction mean? So resident animals are, think of like a nuclear family. Um, They're going to be paired, uh, male, female, and often their offspring kind of living together in in groups of maybe half a dozen or so. And those are the animals that are doing this deer predation. Transient animals are, um, well, lone wolves. (laughs) They're they're, they're Mm -hmm. animals that are out there on the landscape trying to find a place to call home all by themselves. And so if you are in the city and you see a coyote, like in Little Five Points, Um, that is probably a transient animal trying to find a more wild place to be than than the city. Um, Yeah, so that's the big difference. But but what this does, if you kill a resident animal somewhere out in the wild, there's this huge network of, of transient animals just moving across the landscape, waiting to hop back into that place that you've removed a coyote from. And, and start the process of, of making a family all over again. Grant, do we know what the number of population is of those resident and transient coyotes, respectively? Yeah, off the top of my head, it's something like 90,000 transient animals in Georgia, um, maybe a quarter of a million of the resident animals. Mm-hmm. And, and like something like 40,000 a year get killed in Georgia. Um, so long story short, there's no shortage of coyotes. This isn't an endangered animal by any stretch. Um, it's very adaptable, and it's being very, very successful here in the South. Yeah, that's the headline of your story. As coyotes change the South, the South is changing them. So they are adapting to this different environment and shifting to deer hunting. Yeah, right. And so the most exciting thing, well, the most new exciting thing, I'm very excitable, so all this is good to me, <laughs> but th- they found that the bodies of Southern coyotes are changing in distinct ways compared to coyotes in the West or the North. Their their ears and tails are getting shorter and Michael Chamberlain at UGA tells me that they think this may be part of the adaptations to changing over to this deer predation. These are things that make it easier for them to hunt adult deer. So their growing population feeding on deer and the fact that humans are now occupying more and more previously wild lands is one of the reasons that the DNR is incentivizing hunting coyotes. Does the research that you reported on and heard about make any assessment on efficacy of coyote hunting. Right. So Charlie Kilmester um, heads up the deer program at Georgia DNR. And, and he said in the story that, that indiscriminate killing of coyotes really doesn't do much for wildlife management. You have to think across broad swaths of land, like 70 miles across, and take this comprehensive look at where coyotes are, 
how you're going to control their populations if you want to do anything with uh, for deer populations. And but there's also evidence that hunting pressure on coyotes ironically increases their numbers. How? how? That well, that's that's that was not a part of this study, so I don't want to attribute to the attribute this this idea to what the, the folks at Warnell were looking at. But there's this idea that they have some mechanism to say maybe double the size of their litters when there's hunting pressure. So uh, the jury's still out on exactly if you wanted to control coyote numbers in the South, how you would even begin to do it. Uh, Michael Chamberlain has told me from from Warnell School of Forestry again at UGA. The one thing they're looking at is maybe how to manage forests in a way so that it's harder for deer to hunt, or, or excuse me, coyotes to hunt deer. Again, think of these really dense woods. If, if there are less environments that are managed that way to be super, super dense and hard to move around in, coyotes might have a tougher time hunting deer. All right, uh, Grant. That was a piece of the research they're looking into next. Grant, stay with us. Uh, Grant contributed to our Wild Georgia series. Sophia Salaby is also here. She reported on the Monadnocks. Hello, Sophia. Hi. Now, you hiked Metro Atlanta's most famous mountain for this story. Here's just a little bit of sound from that experience. We're on Stone Mountain, 30 minutes east of the city. And on this spring Saturday, it's busy. But this isn't just a mountain. As Mira Cardenas explains, it's also called a Monadnock. Here on the east side of Atlanta, we have the most common Monadnock, the one that everyone knows, uh, Stone Mountain, world famous. As you hike up Stone Mountain, notice that the stone is really smooth and worn. You see bare rock, you don't see a lot of plants. But if you look in the crevices, you start to see a plant called Diamorpha. So, Sophia, Stone Mountain isn't just a mountain, it's a Monadnock. What is that exactly? So, a Monadnock is not your typical mountain. A typical mountain is formed through tectonic plates coming together, or there's also sometimes a volcano involved. Instead, a Monadnock is formed when this hard rock forms underneath that first layer of Earth. And over thousands and millions of years, that top layer of Earth erodes, leaving something like Stone Mountain, a big granite outcrop that looks like a mountain and is kind of a mountain, but isn't quite. Um, so it's a it's a difference in formation. And it's bare rock for the most part. For the most part, yes. But it's not the only formation in, of its kind of in the area. Mount Arabia, Panola Mountains, also Monadnocks. You learned they're not quite the same. So physically, Arabia is a lot older. I think it's estimated it's about 400 to 500 million years old. Panola and Stone Mountains, they formed at about the same time, 300 million years ago, which kind of determined their fate and how we think about them now. Stone Mountain cooled a lot more quickly. It left some great granite that people use. Panola cooled a lot more slowly, leaving the granite fragile. And because of that, when people tried to quarry Panola like they tried to quarry, like they quarried Stone Mountain, uh, it was too fragile and they had to give up. So that's why uh, you maybe don't think of Panola first because it's a lot more preserved. It's harder to get on to hike. Right. So your guide mentioned diamorph diamorpha, mm -hmm. plants that grow in solution pits, uh, they called. You met a little girl on your hike who told you more about them. I try not to step in them. Sometimes I even have to leap over them because they're so big. <laughs> and why shouldn't we step in them? Because then then the plants um then the plants that are growing there won't won't live anymore and they take a long time to grow. So, Sophia, what's so special about the solution pits that even a well-informed child knows not to squash the, what's inside? Well, they're old, for one. I think this story is all about 
ancient things that have been happening for years. They take tens of thousands of years to grow. And basically the way these start is little lichen that makes its way onto the mountain. And then they slowly eat away, creating these pits. And then plants like diamorpha, which are these little succulents with red, red and white flowers that only like bloom in March and April. And they come in. And then eventually, if you that process continues, the solution pits become forests, which is how it looks on top of Panola Mountain, which you would never see on the top of Stone Mountain at this point. But this brings to mind a reality that people hike these mountains a lot. Stone Mountain attracts thousands of people each year with its laser light shows. How does all this human traffic affect the ecosystem on top of these monadnocks? So it, like I said, it takes a long time for these solution pits to grow. And that human activity on top of Stone Mountain, the quarrying, carving into it, there's carved graffiti on it from workers over the years, that disrupts that growth pattern for the solution pits and the diamorpha and then what happens afterward. So that's kind of the big difference. When you go on somewhere like Panola, where you can only have guided hikes, they only tried to quarry it once and then gave up. There's a forest growing there, and you have to walk very carefully in the waterline so that you're, what you're, how you're stepping doesn't affect the lichen, which becomes a solution pit, which becomes much more. So it's kind of this fantastic little process that really only happens on these monadnocks. And what I found in the story is that you're kind of able to have the best of both worlds, have your cake and eat it too, because Stone Mountain at this point has just become this recreational space. But there are places where you can still see what would have happened if we hadn't done the same things. I'm going to go back to you, Grant. And this we've got a minute left. You've been editing features for GPB and reporting on your own. And this is the last day of our Wild Georgia series. So why do you, what do you want to leave listeners with as we close out this series? I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around in Georgia just how how multifaceted the the outdoors is here. Our environments um, we have some of the the densest species uh, diversity in the world in some of our forests, particularly in the Piedmont. Um, Sophie's story about the solution pits and the thousands of years it takes to grow a forest on the side of one of these monadnocks. All of these things are so fascinating. And what I want people to do is just go out into Georgia, go out into the world and experience these things for yourselves. And be thankful, as I am, that uh, that we live in such a beautiful place. Well, it's, Gra- a, it's a great place to be. Grant Blankenship, thank you so much. Hey, yeah, no worries. Thanks for having us. Sophia Salaby, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Both of them reported for our Wild Georgia series, and you can hear the whole thing if you go to gpbnews.org. There are several different different features and stories in there. And also, you can join the conversation about how you enjoy the outdoors. Go to our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.